0: Hey there, and thanks for listening to our podcast. Our mission at Hope is to invite everyone to find Jesus and help them move toward the center of God's purpose for their life. Here's this weekend's message.
1: Well, everyone all across our campuses online, all of us here, how many feeling good today? Man, so good to see you guys. Excited about today. Continuing, obviously, a series called Bridges. Before we, we dive into that, I, I feel like that with all that's going on in our world, we just need to stop for a minute as a, as a collective body across all of our campus, even watching online, and pray, and, and just ask the Lord to intervene. There's so many things going on, obviously, uh, not to mention the fires in California and, and that area that's devastating, devastating. But uh, in Haiti, the devastating earthquake, and they're still uh, walking through the challenges and the rubble of that mess, and then Afghanistan, and what's going on there, I just felt like, you know, when I say, hey, we're going to pray, then usually what I'll do is I'll stand up here and I'll pray, and then you listen or daydream or, you know, whatever, and which is fine. I, 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 when you pray, I do the same thing. Um, no, I'm kidding. I know. I um, know. But I thought, what, what if I just wrote a prayer and, and we just said it all out loud together like, like we're actually praying, thousands of people praying together. So I'm going to ask you to do that today with me. As we specifically pray for Haiti and we pray for Afghanistan, uh, how many understand that those people matter to God? And if they matter to God, they should matter to us. Um, we just sent... to to help the relief in Haiti. We're right now figuring out how can we help in the crisis in Afghanistan. It's it's not like we're just praying. However, how many know the most that you can ever do is pray? That's the most we can do. And then we supplement that, of course, with our actions and, and so forth. But we just want to surrender our hearts to God. So I'm going to ask you, it's going to be on the screens across all of our campuses. And and online, it'll be on the screen for you as well. Could we pray this together? Let's pray together. Father, we know you hear us when we pray. Today, we choose not to simply pray for our own needs, but for the needs of others. Those who are far away in miles, but close in our hearts. We pray for those in Haiti. May your comfort, peace, And provision be theirs. We pray for the leaders on the ground. We ask you to give them wisdom, compassion, and the help they need. We pray for ministries and organizations who are trying to help them. May you give them each day their daily bread. We also pray for the people of Afghanistan, for those who are still waiting to depart for those navigating the challenges of travel, passports, and decisions. We pray for safety, protection, and peace in their hearts. We pray for the Christian pastors and leaders who are in fear for their lives, yet willing to lay theirs down for the sake of others. Grant them divine protection. We also pray for those who are now leading this country. We pray that you would reveal your love like never before. May they understand how wide, how deep, how long, and how high your love really is for them, and may they accept your invitation for salvation. Finally, Lord, grant our government and other leaders around the world who are concerned about this country wisdom as they lead. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done in this nation as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I hope that you will continue to pray for these countries as well as our world and, and the, the craziness that we're in. You know, it just doesn't seem to end. A year and a half ago, we were met with one of the greatest challenges that in our lifetime we've ever faced. Um, but on top of that, uh, that, that uh, medical challenge, COVID, we added the racial challenge. We added the political challenge that we're all still in. Today, and and it brings a lot of disunity, doesn't it? It's brought disunity to our church. It's brought disunity to our country. It's brought disunity to our world in a variety of ways. And as we continue this series called Bridges, what we want to do is understand that we are the bridge. That we can be be a bridge. We talked last week about burning some bridges and crossing some bridges. Today, we're going to talk about that we are the bridge. And next week, we're going to talk about building a bridge. But today, you're going to be blessed. I've invited my friend who pastors in Little Rock, a Mosaic church, a multi-ethnic cultural church. Over 30 nations represented in this church, intentionally designed To walk in unity as the body of Christ. You're going to hear today. Now listen, he's going to move fast. He's going to move quick. He's got a lot of information. So I told him that you are high capacity people. Okay? So I want you to listen quickly and then go back this week and then go to some of these. He's going to give you scripture after scripture after scripture. And you're going to hear things today that you have never heard in your life. Unbelievable teaching. And based out of the book of Ephesians, which we're in, in this series. I've known Mark for, or, or I've known of Mark for over 25 years. He was a youth pastor in Little Rock at a great church. He, was, he wrote a book. He was teaching at conferences. I was at conferences that he taught at. We talked about this. And a few months ago, I reached out to him, our team did, to say, hey, with the racial tensions in our country, you've led the way in this. Help us. Give us some some, uh, wisdom to navigate some of these things because we want to be all that Jesus wants us to be and answer the prayer in John 17 that we would be one. And so the wisdom, now he's way older than me, and so the wisdom that you're going to get is, is off the charts. So I want you to open your hearts, and I want you to wait until the end because he's going to bring it all together, and it's going to be like, wow, this is the kind of church we already are. We just need to continue to fan that flame. I believe that. So would you join me across all of our campuses in welcoming Mark Demas as he comes to teach on the book of Ephesians in our series called Bridges. Mark, thanks for coming, man. We're so grateful. Love you too, buddy. Thank you, John, and good
0: morning, Hope. So good to be with you here this morning. You know, for 18 years, as John uh, mentioned, I served as a student ministries pastor. The final eight of those years, from 1993 to 2001, at an amazing church in Little Rock, Arkansas. When I got there in 1993, the church was about 2,000 people. Eight years later, it was 5,000 people. Uh, Our youth group grew from 150 to 600 kids during that time. I was able to design and build and pay with cash a $3.5 million student center. Uh, I was in the top 2% of paid youth pastors in America. Uh, I ended up with nine full-time people just to serve seven through twelve grade students. In other words, I was living the dream in an amazing church until one day I looked around in 1997 and I realized that the only people of color in this otherwise tremendous ministry that I was a part of, the only people of color were janitors. And that began to bother me. And so for the next several years, I, uh, when I could, I threw out what I'd learned in seminary. I threw out what I'd been taught regarding the nature of the New Testament church. For instance, I was taught that the churches in the New Testament were segregated. Uh, Jewish believers went to Jewish churches, Gentile believers to Gentile churches, Uh, Is that really true? I began to study, use my degree in exegesis on my own, as opposed to just listening to what I'd been taught. In seminary, uh, we were taught that the the way to plant, grow, and develop churches was to target a single people group. In plain English, you you plant towards white people or black people or Hispanic people. Is that really the way it was in the New Testament? So for the next few years, I dove into the subject opened the Bible, did my own homework, and in 2001, I left that church, uh, went to the inner city of Little Rock with what Christianity today would call three years later, a big dream in Little Rock. And that was, could diverse men and women will themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church to advance a credible gospel beyond the distinctions of this world that otherwise divide? And today I have the privilege, I get to share with you some of that learning in the late 19, uh, 1990s, 97 through 2001, specific to the book of Ephesians this morning. I'm so glad. And if you have a Bible, open it up with me to the book of Ephesians. As John mentioned, I'm going to go pretty quickly, but I encourage you to go back, uh, maybe watch the tape, not so much to watch me, but to to dive into the word of God for yourself and to see if, in fact, what I'm sharing with you resonates with your spirit. You know, I grew up Jesuit Catholic, attending Catholic schools. I was an altar boy. I worked in the rectories. And of course, I was very familiar, uh, therefore, with Christ's prayer, right? Uh, The Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so in the late 90s, I began to ask myself, knowing this prayer, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated. And we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people and tongue, walking, working, worshiping God together as one, as a part of the eternal body and bride of Christ. If the kingdom of heaven then is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If Christ taught us to pray, what's going on up there ought to be going on down here. And again, we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, Revelation 7, 9, If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the local church? I to ask myself that question. In fact, according to the latest statistics, 77% of evangelical churches in this country and 89% of mainline churches in the U.S. today remain systemically segregated, failing to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in, and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that the vast majority of churches in this country remain systemically segregated along the lines of color, class, and culture, and that little has changed in now the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour Of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. But more than bemoaning this from an emotional standpoint, the systemic segregation of the American church is undermining our ability to advance a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. My good friend Dave Olson with the Evangelical Covenant Church completed a study of more than 200,000 churches in 2010. And among other things, he found this, that between 1990 and 2009, in a 20-year period of American history, when more than 56 million people became uh, uh, American citizens through birth or legal immigration, do you know how many people became active members of a local church during that same 20-year span? 446,540 people. Folks, that's less than 1%. And if you were a room full of pastors this morning, I, I would say to you, look me in the eye. No one is listening. No one is listening to the American church. No one is listening to our message of God's love for all people. Why? Because we otherwise preach and proclaim it from segregated pulpits and pews. And the message is unbelievable. The fact is, an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society no longer finds credible our message of God's love for all people, again, because it's preached from segregated pulpits and pews. Now, having said that, I'm not here this morning promoting this vision of building healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse churches uh, because of political correctness. Not because Barack Obama or Kamala Harris Uh, are are biracial and somehow represent the changing demographics of this country. The fact is, it's not about diversity. It's about discipleship. And ultimately, it's about the credibility of the American church to advance a credible gospel, a believable gospel, again, in an increasingly diverse society. The fact is, the New Testament church, as I referred, was what we would call today multi-ethnic. It was envisioned by Christ on the night before he died. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, when he called us, that is, the disciples, those that would come after the disciples who believe in him through their word, he called us to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel. He prayed that we would be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. John chapter 17, Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died. But then Luke, in the book of Acts, goes on to describe what this type of church not only looks like, but the effectiveness of this type of church advancing the gospel. Now, most pastors in America and most churches believe mistakenly that Acts chapter 2, the church at Jerusalem, is the model church of the New Testament. The fact is, Acts chapter 2 is only a starting point. It is not the stopping point. And by and large, the church at Jerusalem was segregated That is, it was a church filled with Jewish converts. But it's at the church at Antioch, Acts chapter 11, is described by Luke that you see the vision of Christ come to fruition. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, willing themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church. Which church is the first to take up a collection for someone other than themselves? Not uh, not Jerusalem, it was the church at Antioch. Which is the first church to send missionaries to the world willingly? It wasn't Jerusalem, it was Antioch. The fact is, when your church reflects its community, the richness of its diversity, mission isn't a program. It's who you are. It's who you are. So Christ envisioned that the church would be multi-ethnic for the sake of the gospel. Luke describes it in action at a place called Antioch. But as we turn our attention this morning, and again, if you have your Bible, open it up to Ephesians, we take a look at Paul's prescription for the multi-ethnic church. In other words, Paul prescribed that wherever possible, churches should reflect their communities. Churches should be multi-ethnic. Preaching a message of God's love, faith, hope, peace for all people, not just some people, in tangible ways for the sake of the gospel. Now, as we open up to the book of Ephesians, uh, keep in mind that the theme of this book is like the theme of every other book that the Apostle Paul wrote. In fact, it's the theme of his very life. And that theme is this, the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. Diverse men and women from varying cultural backgrounds uh, from very economic, uh, varying economic and social class and status, willing themselves to be one in the church to advance a credible gospel. The unity of the church for the sake of the gospel is the theme of this letter, as it is, again, every letter that the apostle Paul wrote. In fact, his life was called to advance this message. And if I tell you that this is the theme of the book, I gotta prove it, right? I gotta prove it to you, so let me do that. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse one, all the way through chapter two, verses eight and nine. In this first section, Paul is speaking to the individual Christian. Now remember, unlike uh, preaching as I'm doing this morning, so to speak, uh, the, the letter that Paul wrote was to the church, and, and someone would have read this letter to the church. What you need to understand is the church at Ephesus is a diverse church. Again, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all in this one church, and they're listening to this letter. And so as, as someone is reading this letter, again, in the first section, which of course they didn't have chapter divisions and numbers, but for our sake today, the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 8, 9, Paul is speaking to individuals in the room. And this is where Paul gets in first to the individual believer's identity in Christ. Those of us who have been saved, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we have been chosen, we have been adopted, we have been predestined for eternal life. Uh, We have access to all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. This is the great identity passage. Uh, Ephesians, again, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So he's speaking to the individual uh, believer about their identity in Christ. And by the time he gets done with this section, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know this verse, right? He concludes this section by saying, For by grace you, the individual, you, the individual, have been saved by through by grace through faith. That salvation is not of yourselves. You can't earn it. There's nothing you did to deserve it, right? It was granted to you grace through faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And that's where he concludes this first section. Now, many of your Bibles, if you'll look at them, they'll have a division break after verse 10 and not verse 9. I think that's a mistake. Remember, those breaks are put in by human editors. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul moves away from speaking to the individual in the room to the collective church. That's why he says for we are his workmanship. We the collective church are his workmanship. And we the collective church have been created to do good works from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 2:10 is not speaking to you or me individually, it's speaking to us the local church. And this is the kingdom of God is at hand as Christ preached. It's the church and it's not that Mark the was created from the foundation of the world to do great works. I'm sure that's true. That's not what Ephesians 2:10 is is speaking to. Ephesians 2:10 is speaking to we, the church, are to walk in good works prepared for us to walk in from the foundation of the world. And the question becomes, well, what is the good work? Well, Paul goes on to explain, and from Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven. All the way through chapter 4, verse 6, he speaks to racial division. And how do we heal and what's involved in that? Because in chapter 2, verse 11, he then turns his attention. He starts speaking to the whole church, but then specifically speaks to the Gentiles. He says, let me talk to you Gentiles for a moment. It's a subset of the whole church. Now today, we would maybe call that people of color in otherwise all white churches. Hey, let me talk to all you people of color for a moment. Or more specifically, let me help you understand how it would have felt to the hearers of this letter 2,000 years ago. Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter two, eleven, when he says, now let me talk to you Gentiles for a moment. That would be like me saying, now let me talk to all of you black people in the room for a moment. That's how that would have felt. When he sets in talking about the Gentiles in Ephesians 2, 11, he says, now remember how you were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision? Remember how you were without hope and promise in the world, separated from the covenant and the promises of salvation uh, through Christ that was given to the nation of Israel? Remember how there were these two groups that were divided, and you were without hope and promise in the world? Do you remember that, Gentiles? That would be like me saying today. This is how it would have felt. Let me talk to you black people for a moment. You remember how you were called the N-word by all the white people in this country? You remember how you were enslaved for 400 years in this country? remember how you had no hope and promise at points you didn't even have the right to vote? And on and on. Do you remember that, black people? That's how it would have felt. The term uncircumcision at that time used by the Jews as a pejorative to Gentiles was no different than white people using the N-word to African Americans in this country. That's what this passage is talking about. So he says, you remember how Gentiles, you were separated without hope and promises from the covenants of Israel, but now thanks be to God. Now thanks be to God because through the blood of Jesus Christ, the dividing walls of division between these two people groups, Jews on the one hand and everybody else, the Gentiles have been broken down through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, The two groups, this enmity, as the New American Standard talks about, has been obliterated. What does the word enmity mean? It means historical animosity between people groups. What we would say today, racism. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, racism has been obliterated by his work on the cross. So that the two groups now can become one new man. One body, meaning the local church. One temple in which the Spirit of God will be pleased to dwell. Thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is going to then pray for these people, pray for the collective church, and later on he's going to explain if that's in fact true, which it is, how do we walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church? How can we be one beyond the distinctions of this world that otherwise divide. That's where he's going. And in our Bibles, we get there in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. But Paul takes a little sidestep here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. And he's prone to wander as I am when it comes to your thoughts. And he does that here, and he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. But, but let me remind all of you, I've already taught you about this. I've already spoken to you about this very subject of, of the blood of Christ making the two groups one new man, one body, one temple. Uh, I've already spoken to you about this mystery of Christ. And if you've forgotten what I've taught you, go back and read the letter that I've already sent. Boy, I wish we had that letter today. The entire letter devoted to this subject. But in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, Paul summarizes that letter, digresses from his prayer, to explain or to summarize that first letter. He says, if you've forgotten what I taught, go back and read the first letter. Because in that letter, I explain to you what prophets and those who have gone before us long to understand, but has only been revealed to us in these latter days. That is the mystery of Christ. Now, the casual reader of scripture here will see this phrase mystery of Christ and automatically assume Paul is talking about redemption. Redemption atonement, uh, the work of Christ on the cross. But that is not what the mystery of Christ, that phrase means here in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 6. We know this is true because Paul is going to define it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6, uh, but he also defines it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, as well as Romans 16, 25 through 27. Three times in the letters of Paul, he refers to the mystery of Christ and defines it. And where you see that definition most clearly is in Ephesians chapter three and verse six. And I'm summarizing now, but in Ephesians three, six, he says, the mystery of Christ is this, to be specific, Gentiles, not just Jews, can be saved. Gentiles, not just Jews, are to be one in equity with the Jews in a local church. And Gentiles, not just Jews, will be part of the coming kingdom of heaven. This is the mystery of Christ. And people long to understand it, but it's only been revealed to us, he says, in these latter days. In fact, in Ephesians chapter three and verse seven, he says, to this gospel, I have been appointed to preach. I have been made a servant, he says, of this gospel. Now, you might stop right there and say, wait, what the heck heck is this gospel thing, right? What are you talking about this gospel? Again, the casual reader of scripture is going to think about the gospel atonement in Christ. But as Paul is speaking collectively to the church, again, how can we walk, work, and worship God beyond earthly distinctions? Having talked about the Gentiles without hope, here he speaks specifically about Gentile inclusion. He says, I have been made a servant of this gospel. Now, the word gospel is something we should pause for a moment to discuss. Because over 2,000 years of church history, the word gospel uh, has been uh, limited to just mean atonement, to mean redemption, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the fact is, in Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, the word gospel, all it means is good news. In other words, if you were drowning in a river and I reached in and pulled you out, it's gospel to you. That's all it means. It just means generally good news. But we have made that word as if it only means one thing, atonement, redemption in Christ. So with regard to atonement or redemption, I use the phrase capital G gospel because in fact there is a second gospel in the New Testament. It's the gospel of Paul. To this gospel, I have been specifically appointed by Christ. And you say, what the heck is this gospel? Now, to be clear, it's not a different gospel. In other words, not a different way to be saved. But rooted in foundation on the capital G gospel, Paul has been specifically called by God to proclaim another gospel, a more expanded gospel. Again, not salvific. But Paul's gospel is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. We just explained that, Ephesians 3, 6. That Gentiles, not just Jews, can be saved. That's good news for the Gentiles. That Gentiles, not just Jews, can be one in the church with equity. That's good news to the Gentiles. That the Gentiles will be part of the coming and kingdom of God. That is good news to the Gentiles because before they were separated from those promises. But now through the blood of Christ, been made and brought near to the Jews in this regard. So this gospel to which Paul has been appointed is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. And again, in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, he even calls it my gospel. After speaking or writing a letter to the diverse church at Rome, calling them to the same thing he's calling the church at Ephesus here, to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel, at the end of this great letter, he says this, now may God establish you all, if I say it in the South, y'all, right? Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, men and women. May God establish this church according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So again, you say, what the heck is this my gospel? Imagine if I showed up today and I said, I'm so glad to be here, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm here, folks, to preach my gospel. How would that feel, right? But Paul says the gospel of Gentile inclusion, this good news to the Gentiles, is what God has called me to preach. And I'm doing that. And the entire book of Romans is about this subject as it is with the book of Ephesians. Now, the question becomes, if this is all true, Why? Why are we to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel? Well, of course, to proclaim that credible gospel. But Paul, beginning in Ephesians 3.10, goes on to give us some other so that's. Why, right? He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God will be displayed to the world through the church. The word manifold in the Greek literally means multicolored. That's what it means. He's talking about this culture and this color coming together as one. If Christ is lifted up, he draws All people, not just some people, to himself. And that gives all people in the community hope when they see that lived out in a local church. Why should we be one in the church? To advance a credible gospel. So that the multicolored wisdom of God will be on display to this community so that people will find hope. Hope for all, not just some. Verse 16, so that you all, y'all, collectively, this church will be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that Christ will dwell collectively in your heart as a church. Verse 18, so that you will know the love of God which surpasses understanding. Verse 19, and then he says specifically so that you would know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of God's love. What is he talking about? He's talking about it like this, if I can say it like this. Maybe African Americans have the depth of God's love, but they don't have the breadth, the width, the length. Maybe white people got the length of God's love, but they don't have the breadth, the depth, the height. You see, everyone contributes to something like a prism. You spin it, and there's all these different reflections of God and who he is and love. And we, and Paul wants us, he prays for this church, that we could know this in our unity and diversity. Because apart from it, you just get one angle of God's love. You just get the height of God's love in a segregated church. You just get the width of God's love. But he wants us to experience the totality of God's love by being one in the church for the sake of the gospel. As an illustration, it's like this. You know, it's like if if people groups were like a salad, right? So there's lettuce and cucumber and tomato and croquon. Think about all those ingredients as, as different people groups. Paul's saying, I want you to get in there and taste the full salad, but in the American church, what we did, yeah, we want all those ingredients in there, but we pour white ranch sauce over the whole thing. You understand what I'm saying? You stick your fork in lettuce, it tastes like ranch sauce. You taste, put your fork in a tomato, it tastes like ranch sauce. The crouton, see, Paul's saying, get rid of your sauce. Because when you taste the lettuce, we want to taste the lettuce. We want to taste the tomato. We want to taste the crouton and on and on so that we as a church can experience the totality and the fullness of God's love. And why else, verses 20 and 21, chapter 3, so that God can do through us and in us immeasurably beyond what we could otherwise ever ask or imagine possible through the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. So then in chapter 4, he does go on and address the how. How do you do this? And he gives us specific instruction. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Again, in American church, we think every you means me individually. But he's saying, church, collectively, walk in a manner worthy of of your calling what is the calling to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel how do you do that you're going to have to be humble you're going to have to be patient with one another forgiving forbearing with one another in love you're going to have to recognize that your way is just a way to do things and not the way to do things in this wonderfully diverse church why because there's only one lord one god one faith one baptism only one God who is over all people groups, working in all people groups, and working through all people groups. And by the way, beginning in chapter four, verse seven, you all have gifts. You've been given spiritual gifts, and Paul addresses this in Romans and Corinthians, and you know these passages. There's some of you are eyes, and some of you are hands, and some of your feet, and some of your legs. And beyond your ethnic and cultural diversity, that has to act as one, you have to bring your spiritual gifts together in unity to advance that credible gospel. And by the way, husbands, you got to be one with your wives. And wives, you got to be one with your husbands. Parents, you got to be one with your kids. And kids, you've got to be one with your parents. And masters and slaves in those days, even in work, as we get out there, as owners of businesses and employees of companies, we have to represent Christ well as one. So we present a unified message in an increasingly diverse society so that all people, not just some people, will be attracted to that capital G gospel of God's love, again, for all people, not just some. So finally, when he gets to chapter 6 and verse 10, he addresses the what? He's addressed the why. He's addressed the how. But what is the challenge? What might prevent us from being one in the church for the sake of the gospel? And he addresses it in chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, he looks the church collectively in the eye, so to speak, and it says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He says in verse 11, you collectively, this church, must put on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What is the scheme of the devil? And wicked forces, as he addressed earlier in this book, the wicked forces in this world and in the heavenly places, they want to divide us. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, your struggle, our collective struggle to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel is not one of color and culture, flesh and blood. So you say, you're fighting it out over flesh and blood issues, right? Color issues, culture, you're judging each other by color or culture. Or James talks about economic privilege and class. He says, what are you talking about? At the foot of the cross, there are no distinctions. Sure, there's men and women. There's Jews and Gentiles, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, of course. But no one people group is better than the other. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the struggle for us to be one is we let the world influence us, not be strong in the Lord. We are supposed to be strong in the Lord and understand and live by this. But he says your struggle collectively, our struggle is not against the color of a man's skin. Or their cultural background. But that's what you think it is. But that's not it. The struggle to be one in the church. Beyond the distinction of this world. To advance a credible gospel. Is a struggle against wicked forces in this world. And in the heavenly places. It's against the devil himself. Because these forces want to divide us. Along the lines of color. Class and culture. Because if they divide us. If we allow them. To divide us along the lines of color, class, and culture, it guts the credibility and the power of the gospel. In plain English, it's less people get saved, less people get into the church. You see what I'm saying? And that's what the wicked forces of evil in this world want and the wicked forces in the heavenly places. They want to divide us along the lines of color, class, and culture. But church, do not let them. Do not let them. Your battle can't be against each other based on color and culture. It's got to be against wicked forces. You have to stand as one by putting on the armor of God. Because only then can we come together in the beauty of our diversity to stand with a unified message that's believable in a diverse society so that we can offer love, faith, peace, hope to all people, not just some people beyond the words of our lips, but through the work of our collective action. In verse 18, then in chapter 6, finally he says, Now pray for me that boldness will be given me in declaring this message. Again, the casual reader of scripture thinks he's talking about declaring Jesus. Hey, pray for me boldly. I can teach, preach Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about preaching this gospel. The gospel of Gentile inclusion is for what reason, by the way, he is beaten and run out of town, and he ultimately ends up in a Roman prison and dies. Generally for preaching Jesus, but specifically for preaching Gentile inclusion in what would have been an otherwise all-Jewish church, all-Jewish salvation, and all-Jewish coming kingdom of God. So what does this mean for us then? Well, this theme is bridges, right? And I was given the title of a message, Be the Bridge. I kind of strike through the B and say, no, we the bridge. We collectively are to be the bridge of the power of the gospel to all people, not just some, by being one in the church for the sake of the gospel. So we learn not only from Ephesians, but for instance, from Acts chapter 15, here's three quick points on the way out, so to speak. Don't make it difficult for others to belong to this church. Don't make it difficult for diverse others, someone different than you, to belong to this church, Acts chapter 15. Galatians chapter 2, second point, don't prefer some over others based on color or culture. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And finally, don't extend power, position, or privilege to people in this church, to some over others, based on economic class or social status. Don't make it difficult for others to belong. Don't prefer others over some based on color or culture. And don't prefer some over others based on economic class or social status. In these ways, we can will ourselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one. Again, why? So that our message of God's love for all people, not just some, is not only heard but seen and experienced, which becomes attractive so that all men and women can come to know Jesus as we do. My friend Chris Rice wrote in a book, More Than Equals, in 1999, a quote that still rings true to this day. He said this, I have become convinced that God is not very interested in using the church to heal the race problem in this country. But rather, I believe in these days, God wants to use race to heal the church. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us individually and collectively the will to lean into unity and diversity for the sake of the gospel. And may you continue to bless Hope Fellowship in this regard, proclaiming a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse society so that others can come to know you as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Hope's Weekend Message. Visit hopefellowship.net and further connect with us by downloading the Hope app from the App Store or Google Play. Have a great day.